Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. In this very interesting conversation with Woody Zool, who is a prolific speaker as well as a co-author on mob programming in the software development, Woody shares about his early stage career in outside software and how he became passionate about using software to improve his life and uh, moved on to learning about pair programming. And he also shares about some of the Uh, early learnings of uh, working as a team and creating very great teams using mob programming as a technique he also covers around deep listening and how meditative it is to listen and act and uh, the wonderful thing about leading from without and how you can use your power of influence listen on hi woody welcome to soft stories how are you doing today very good thank you so much shuri i know it's yes. very early in the morning for you <laughs> actually i i i usually get up about 2 hours earlier than now i i'm often working with people in europe and their time is about 8 or 9 hours off for me so i usually have to get up early to work with them excellent excellent shuri uh, i know uh, you've been traveling a lot and uh, thanks for making time for us and uh, like we normally start uh, would you like to start this podcast with your introduction i know you are a pro- prolific speaker in the conference circuit but uh, can you introduce yourself uh, to our listeners sure well so at this time in my career i consider myself a software developer i create software although i haven't done much creating software in the last 10 years because i'm mostly helping other people create software and mostly the way i do that is by by helping them learn about teamwork and how to work well as a team creating software so that's what i mostly do but you know i started out my career in software about uh, well around 1998 99 and i was already not a young guy then and i had started programming in 1982 when i bought a couple computers and realized i couldn't really get the software i wanted or get very dependable software and i thought maybe i need to learn to write software and i started doing that so that was uh that was a long time ago but i was already i guess about 30 years old when i started learning to program uh so and it just became more interesting and more fun to me than the other things i was doing and i ended up turning that into how i make my living excellent excellent so uh, right now you are working in your own independent firm right yeah. um, but uh, what made you get enthusiastic about uh, programming um, what was your early career looking like when before 98 so w- when i somewhere along the way uh, about 1996 so that's a long time ago uh, i started realizing and my help my wife helped me realize this is that i was more interested in programming than in the business that we had that I was writing my software for. So I was writing software that I needed to use and uh but it was so much fun and I was so interested in writing software that we decided well maybe I'll switch my career into being a software developer solely. 
And uh, I found software development to have a lot of benefits for me. It, it's really closely related to problem solving, puzzles, uh, being creative, a lot of things that I really enjoyed. And I found that somewhere along the way, there were some other benefits, such as if I'm writing software, when I'm done with the day, I don't need to sweep up all the dust and put all my tools away. It's like there's no mess. It's just on the computer. Now, there might be some ways we could think about at the end of the day, we still need to clean things up, but it's not the same as making things out of wood, or I used to do a lot of painting of things in other businesses I had. And so, uh, yeah, this is nice. Uh, it was just fun. So that's it grew into something I really loved. And part of what I loved about it was that I could be in my own brain during the whole process. And that's not teamwork. So somewhere along the way, it became clear to me that that although I liked working alone, I would get better results when I worked with a team. And I started focusing on learning to be good at, at doing team software development, which I now call software teaming, software team. Excellent. Um, in fact, uh, one of the first things that I learned about Java is the garbage collector. And, yes, uh, <laughs> yes. So you can let it do some of that work for you. <laughs> exactly. And uh, um, when I when I learned uh, garbage collector in Java, I, when I moved from C C plus plus programming, and I heard this, I was like, "Wow, really?" <laughs> well, you know, so I learned I, I learned how to program in C and C plus plus in the late '80s, early '90s, and I didn't enjoy it at all. You know, I I, I had learned to program in BASIC. And basic didn't have any of those, uh, you know, didn't, you never dealt with pointers, you know, so getting my head around pointers and learning to use them, I never found that to be particularly fun. But uh, in the 90s, you know, is when Visual Basic came out. And I actually, uh, I was in the middle of doing some work and somebody said, you know what would make this a lot easier? Try this. And they handed me a, you know, a box that was VB3 or something. I installed it on my computer and yeah, things got real easy, real quick. And so I, I became sort of an expert at that. At the same time, or shortly after that, a visual C++ had come out. But uh, writing Windows software in C++ was quite a challenge for me. And so I, I went down the path of the, the easier path. Thank you. I think... Uh... For me also, when I was learning from Fortran and moved to C++, while uh, I did enjoy the parts where programming inside a switch, that time I think we were only using C programming or C++. So when I moved to the application level, it was such a breeze. I was like, wow, I did not know this. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's a funny thing. It's no matter what we do in our lives, what we do for work, if we find enjoyment in it, it really makes it a lot a lot easier. At least I found that for myself. So I'm really glad that I enjoyed software development, but I also found ways to make it easy for me. And a couple of those things included, besides working as a pair, because it wasn't until much later that we started working as a team, but working with two people working together at one computer, that made things a lot easier. But also uh, test-driven development, which I, I found to be very useful to me, and it made my work a whole lot easier. So... Uh that's true. In fact, uh, I, I I don't remember doing paraprogramming till uh, later in my career. So how did you uh, uh, mean come upon the whole paraprogramming thing? Was it also when you were experimenting? Uh, was it also the you know one being a driver and other being a navigator, or how did that yes. start? So I read about paraprogramming 
I think in 1998, and I, you know, by that time in my life, I had already grown to realize that if I see somebody else that I respect um, suggest something that is worthwhile, I'll just accept that it must be worthwhile. I'm going to learn how to do it. And in this case, with pair programming, I've been reading about it on the internet, and I thought, okay, these people think it's good. It must be good. I'm going to give it a try. And it took me about two years to get to the point where it was, I was good enough at it that it really made my job easier. And it probably took, I think it was in 2003, is when it really became clear to me that that was the only way I wanted to work. So it took a few years, but but uh, I had learned about it. I decided to try it. I practiced it with other people. And uh, it, the big benefit for me was that any idea that I had would be increased by the amount of knowledge that other person had. It was no longer a solo thing where it had to be everything in my brain. And now we had something we could try. We More things to experiment, more, more ways to think about something. So pair programming turned out to be really good. And when I first learned it, somebody had told me that it's a, there's a driver and a navigator. And they said it's kind of like uh, getting into a taxi cab. There's somebody at the steering wheel. You don't get into the taxi cab and say, well, what are we going to do today? You know, the, when you get in the taxi cab, you say, I need to go to the airport. So that's the navigator. The person says to the other one, here's what I'd like to do. And here's what the way I want to go about doing it. And the person at the keyboard, which we can think of as the driver, is going to drive us there. And that means we, we're going to guide them as we go. And that was how it was explained to me. That was very rarely how it was done until almost 10 years later, I started working with a fellow, uh, Llewellyn Falco is his name. And he had a very strict approach to this. It will always, the idea will always be in the head of the person navigating, not in the head of the person at the keyboard, which we call the driver. And after I experimented with that just a few days, I thought, yeah, this, if you stick with that, it's really, really good. And this is the way that he described it. For an idea to go from someone's head into the computer, it must go through someone else's hands. And that requires that we get good at at least five or 10 different things. But the main ones are, we have to good at, be good at explaining our idea. And getting it, I like to get it on a whiteboard. We have to be good at listening to the other person's idea and trying to implement it. We have to be good at accepting that whatever we're trying to do is worth trying to do and not fight it. If we just move forward, we'll learn something. And if we don't and we just talk about it, there isn't much learning going on. So those are the, some of the things that we need to get good at. Uh, one last thing is we need to get good at not interrupting the other person. Let them finish their thought. And thoughts often take more than one sentence. So we let the person finish what they're trying to say and then give feedback if necessary. But it worked out really well. The pair programming actually turned into making my almost a whole decade from, you know, 2002 until 2009. Whenever I could, I would pair program. And I found that it made my, my life so much easier and more fun. Excellent, excellent, Woody. So uh, when you do pair programming, right, uh, one of the, uh, when we were suggesting this uh, to one of our clients and uh, we do this, one of the biggest problems that I have faced is uh, the difference in the experience of the two people. How sure. do you bridge that? I mean, I, sometimes I think that is a strength that sort of helps bridge the uh, difference and it become, makes it a collective one, but it's not very easy for somebody to understand. It looks like a you know paradigm shift. How do you make that happen? Yeah. So this is an interesting thing. I like to see a difference in experience level. Now, pair programming is usually focused with two people 
who are sort of skilled in the same area. In other words, they're they're both front-end developers or full-stack developers or whatever. And always one is going to be more senior than the other. It's rarely you get two people that are exactly the same experience in their life. But it was in 2003, I believe, that it really became clear to me how useful it can be to have someone who has a lot of experience and someone who doesn't have a lot of experience. One of the things, the benefits you get from this is, um, so there's the curse of knowledge, I don't know if you've ever heard of the curse of knowledge. When we think we know something, it sort of becomes our way of doing it. And it blocks us from even remembering how did we get here in the first place? When you're working with someone's more junior, they have more beginner's mind. And that will that will expose things that we can't expose when we feel we already have a lot of knowledge. It's really difficult to have a beginner's mind when we're an expert. But in reality, we are always beginners even though we've become experts, because we're always learning new things. Now, in 2003, the the experience was I had to uh, hand off a project to a very junior person. And I was working in a place where they didn't allow pair programming. They thought that was wasteful. And I went to my boss and said, you know, I've got to hand this off to this person. And the only really useful way for me to do this is if we sit together at the same computer. So over the next two weeks, we're going to be sitting together. And just to warn him, and he, he was okay. So we started in and I sat at the computer and I started explaining things to them. They were sitting next to me and I started typing things in. And uh, it became clear real quick. Well, they're not going to learn very much if I'm just talking and typing. What if they took the keyboard? So I had this fellow take the keyboard and I started guiding him. After two weeks, I think the uh, the end result for me was we were able to hand off this very complicated project that was in the middle of being developed to a very junior person because every question he could have, I would need to guide him through it. And he would know better than me the questions he would have, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna know what he is missing. And the experience proved to me that as I explained things, whether or not he understood those things, because if I was just there explaining them and I'm at the keyboard, I don't know how much is getting into their brain. But if they're at the keyboard and I could say, let's do this, and they do it, and then let's do this part, and there's two or three things that are kind of come together, let's see if we can now do it without my guidance. And pretty soon we're proving that the communication has happened in real time. In two weeks, we handed off uh, something that I don't think I could have documented or in any other way uh, created a full enough experience to hand that code off in such a short amount of time. Um, Woody, I think uh, one of the things, particularly with code, right? If you have a clean code and you you help them understand the big picture and how componentized it is and how the uh, information flow works, the two in a very classic pair programming that enables a lot uh, do you want to share you know, some stories as to how you manage different cultures uh, i know uh, you encourage working with team working as a team more programming and things like that and uh, particularly when you have different experiences not just from a experience level but also their own life experiences how do you bridge those things any stories yeah there? Well, that's that's really a, an important thing. For one thing, even if you've grew if you grew up in the same home with a brother or sister, you are two different people with two different cultures. It may not be as apparent, but I had uh, five brothers and sisters, so there were six of us, 
and not a not any two of us think alike. So we diverge as humans pretty quickly in what we would consider what we're aligned on. So it doesn't matter too much to me how wide the difference is. I have a recollection of working with on a project back in the late 90s where a lot of the people were from not just all over the United States, but all over the world. And we had a, a handful of people, for example, from China, handful of people from India, uh, about uh, half the people were relatively young students just out of college who had degrees in software development, but other things too, but from all over the U.S., but also from South America. So we had people from pretty much all over the world in this one building, uh, 200 of us writing software. And it was really clear to me that the different ideas from different perspectives that come from a different worldview, the different way that things work was really useful. So you need to be able to do one thing, is just accept that whatever the other person is saying is meaningful and useful and put it in, try it. So if we say, oh, let's talk about it, we never get to the point where we, we get the real learning. I don't think we even start communicating until we start trying the thing. If we just talk about it, we're we're not going to get an understanding. So if one person says, this is what I'd like to try, and another person says, I don't think that'll work, but I think we could try this, well, then let's try both. We will learn something from trying both. We almost will never learn if we don't try something. We think we've learned something. I've actually had very senior people saying, oh, that won't work and here's why. And then we try it and it turns out it does work. And we have to, well, why didn't it work before? Well, each situation is different. Each little, you know, you can't say this works in software development because it will only work in the particular current context. And that doesn't mean it, it, it will work everywhere and vice versa. Something that didn't work over here might work over there. So yeah, so I, I really like to have a wide range of experience level. I like to have a wide range of, of age because it's often that they, a younger person's thinking in a different way than an older person. When we bring them together, we get a fuller uh, understanding. I like to see not just different cultures, uh, which I like, but different worldviews, different, I could just go on and on, every little difference. So how do we overcome the problems of this? And that is take it to code. When we, when we try something, we actually try it. We don't just talk about it. Let's do it. Yeah, and that is a big leveler, right? In terms of moment you try it and you have a bunch of, I mean, metrics, if you will. Not not everything has to be metric, matriculated, but at least you say these are the things that we will look for. And if that is yes. not working, I mean, it's no longer anybody's ego that we are hurting. Saying you try it uh, in a smaller way or a bigger way and then move on. I think that makes yes. perfect sense. I think this is a very, um, you know, simple but very, very effective way to bridge uh, cultures and uh, bridge, uh, you know, move barriers also. Because then what happens is you're listening deeply and then you're uh, trying it, you know, maybe in a not a big way, but at least in a controlled manner. So how do we go about doing that? And that's something that takes practice. Yeah, I, I've been so I'm not a very self-aware person. I'm not very aware of how I affect other people. And I have to pay a lot of attention to that to see, am I hurting somebody's feelings or am I ignoring somebody? It's not, doesn't come naturally to me. But uh, one thing that I found is that if we, if we pay attention to someone else and validate uh, what their position is or what they're thinking, we don't need to agree, but we need to come to an understanding. And sometimes, for example, if you were to say to me, what I'd like to try is let's put a drop down and we'll fill the drop down with the regions. 
And I'm not sure, well, what do you, you mean by regions? Because we use those to mean different things in different countries and in different, uh, uh, so on. But if we just start doing it, you'll correct me where I misunderstood. So I need to be listening to hear what you said. But as soon as I start doing it, it will, we can prove whether the understanding was had. In reverse, if I were to say to you, that's not going to work, then I'm not allowing you to maintain your willingness to work with me. I need to make it where it's easy for you to work with me. And that means I have to be willing to try your ideas. Matter of fact, I'm going to be really bold about this. Uh, every morning, once we start working as a team with five or six people uh, working in front of one computer all at the same time, which in those days we called mob programming, I'm now calling software teaming. But when you're working with five or six people, I would come in in the morning. I had a little post-it note at my desk when I sat down and logged in in the morning. Uh, and I, that post-it note just said, you know, be the best team member that you can be. And so if I if I remind myself of that every morning, that means I'm going to pay more attention to listening to others, to trying their ideas, to listen as if the next thing they say will be the most important thing I will ever hear. If I have that level of intention in my listening, it really makes the experience much more powerful. When we have five or six people looking at one problem, we have five or six people's perspectives. It's good to hear them all. Not to if, if each one of us are thinking, oh, whatever we're doing is good enough, that's okay for some things, but we also have to bring, what do we think about this forward? And to make that work, everyone else has to be willing to listen and then to try. Uh, you're almost making it look feel like meditative to say, are you in the moment? And uh, this is yeah. what uh, often everyone is saying, right? Uh, if you're mindful, if you're actively listening, what happens is the life gets a lot more, you know, seamless and a lot more yes. of joy, right? Well put, well put. So to, can we learn to do that? I think we can. You know, it, I, I don't think that this is you know part of your human nature that you you're one way or the other way. Whatever we are right now, we can see where what we'd like to change and maybe do better, and let's start practicing that. We actually used to do exercises where we'd practice listening to each just to just to get better at it. And I practice that actually still very frequently, especially when I'm traveling, because you'll often sit down next to a stranger at a bus station or on a bus or on a plane or whatever, and if they want to start talking with you, then I can practice or with me, you know, I can practice listening. And I do think, what am I going to learn from them that I have no other way to learn that will never come into my life unless I listen to what they want to say right now? And I usually will let them, uh, if they want to talk, I'll let them talk as much as they want, because that gives me that opportunity to learn things I have no other way to learn. And it is also a safe space, right? There's a one in a million opportunity that this person we are going to meet again. Very, very cool, uh, Woody. So uh, I had one question around your, um, you know, software teaming. Now with Agile being center stage in how we develop software or how we even uh, think of uh, work getting done, whether software or product teams or everything, right? So uh, how have we evolved in your view, you know, from in a, from extreme programming to what it stands today? And why do you yes. think software teaming is critical for uh, for today's age? Well, when I when I first started doing software, writing software for other people, where I would go and work within a company, so they would hire me as a developer, and I'm going to sit in front of a computer writing code. They would always put me on a team. They would say, "You're going to be on this team." So you go join the team, but then we wouldn't do anything that I would recognize as as a team. 
we would we would still do our individual tasks, our individual work alone. And I wondered about that. Why do we call this a team if we're not really working as a team? And I've worked in, I've done many other things in my life. When I was very young, I played music in bands. And when I was in school, you know, you play on a sports team, just you know, part of your physical education or whatever. And other things, little businesses that I've owned, we would work as a team. And then here I come to uh, software development, and they call it a team, but you never really do much like a team. So that got me thinking about this because I had already learned about pair programming, and I thought I'd like to uh, I'd like to see what how can we think about a team for software development. So during the um, first um, five years, so overall, to me, Agile started somewhere in the late '90s. They gave it a name in 2001, but the ideas started in the '90s, and from 2000 until 2005, it was hard to get anybody who would even try some of these ideas. And the ones that would try it, I think we're getting pretty good success. So the next five years from, you know, let's say 2005 until 2010, there were a lot of people trying it and they wanted help. It's like, boy, I would, don't, we don't seem to be getting what we need to get out of this. And I, there's a lot of reason for that. We could talk about that some other time. That five-year period uh, that followed on the early adopters so people were just starting in, in 2000 to 2005 when we got to the point where a lot of people were now trying it there were a lot of people not doing very good with it so from i would say 2010 and 11 12 a lot of people that were talking with me they were trying to figure out what can we change what are we doing wrong and i came up with a little idea for myself of the way the agile manifesto worked because a lot of people say you know it's individuals interactions over processes and tools uh, working software over comprehensive document customer collaboration over contract negotiation responding to change over following a plan so that's the agile manifesto what it looked like to me was people were not focusing on what does this really mean what does it really mean to value individual and their interaction over processes and tools most people were focusing on the processes and the tools. And so that goes for each one of those things. And this is my thinking was this, that if we're going to focus on or value the people and their ability to have interactions, we need to have processes and tools that actually make that really easy. And most of the time, the processes and tools made that hard. And my thinking came to this. By the time we started software teaming as a real way of working or mob programming, it became clear to me that that we just need to get good at collaboration. It doesn't matter to me how we do it. And I read the book. I'm going to turn around and look for the book here. Teaming Software, uh, uh, Teaming by a Amy Edmondson. So this came out somewhere around 2011. And after I had been already experimenting quite a bit with teams, but okay. she said something really good in this. And that was that uh, there's almost no work that we do in a modern workplace that doesn't require a team. It does. It requires more than one brain. And when you get more than one brain, you have to have ways to interact. And to me, that's what Agile was about. The individuals are important and their ability to interact well is important. So I think even till today, so now we're way down the road from that, that it's really important to emphasize how good can we get at collaborating. I think collaboration is really important. Yeah, Woody, I think uh, you, what you said is uh, right in terms of, you know, um, team is really like the basic fractal in an organization or anything, right? If well, you make that work and make that processes work for you, 
rather than yes. you be you going behind the processes. I think that's where um, we as change agents work uh, well, right? Uh, because uh, so, uh, believe me, uh, the same thing when whenever I go and uh, do consulting for organizations, I, the it, it's the same idea. They might have presented it earlier, but when it comes from an external person with uh, enough uh, data point, uh, it, it gets a lot more easier accepted and uh, the change is easier. I, I, change is always yes. hard, but in terms of acceptance at different levels. So, yeah, so uh, that's a really good point. There's the idea that the credibility of a person who's bringing an idea forward, for some reason, is accentuated when they're not from within the organization. And, and I think that that's probably a wasteful thinking, but it's the way it often is. It's like, if, if I go into a company to talk about something and they recognize me as being an expert in that thing, it's more valuable for whatever reason to them than somebody within the company that has the exact same thing to present, the exact same thoughts to share. They just seem to value it more if the person is, you know, supposedly an expert outside the company. I, I don't really think that needs to be, but that's this is the thing I call this leading from without. You, if you're not, if you don't have authority to lead, you know, you don't have the. Um, it's not your job to say, "Come follow me." Then you need to entice people to to try the things that will may, maybe help them. Now we have to be careful. Whatever we think is helpful, whatever we think is meaningful doesn't necessarily mean that it is. So if I think I can help you by helping you learn a particular thing, that doesn't mean I will, I'll really be able to help you. It's just is the way I'm thinking about it. So I have to be careful to realize it's not it's not what I know is going to help you. We need to discover what's going to help. So if I bring something to a team, uh, the main thing I want to do is let's learn how to experiment. Let's learn how to learn. Let's learn how to become our own coach. Let's learn to become our own hero. Nobody else is coming to save the day. We're the ones who have to do it. So that's, yeah. that's the way I look at it. And sometimes I think that is the, uh, you know, victimhood sort of thing come into play uh, at, at times to the team saying, hey, this is not in my backyard kind of uh, attitude. Somebody yes. else will come and help me. Uh, until then, I will continue to stay in this problem. I think that is one I, I've often seen. And when there is a catalyst who comes in, is, yeah now is the time i have to change so that that attitude yep. i've seen but i think you're right in terms of saying uh can you lead from uh within or lead from uh, you know i like the way you're saying lead from without <laughs> yeah so you know in my experience when i first started doing software development for other people i the process was you have a resume you fill out an application you turn that into them maybe they call you for an interview. If they're really desperate and they need a lot of people right away, there's a good chance you'll get a call. Otherwise, they're going to go through all these resumes. From the resumes, they're going to try and choose who might be a good match. Well, that's, I don't think, a very helpful process, but that's sort of how it happens. So I wanted to flip that over. I wanted to reverse that so that, um, so that people would come to me rather than me having to go to them. So what I start doing is speaking at user groups about the things that were important to me. And at first it was just, you know, coding and clean code, uh, having, we didn't call it that then, but, you know, having code that was expressive and that worked well and uh, uh, was easy to work on. So those are the things that I talked about, thinking that if somebody heard me uh, talking about this at a user group, they might come up and say, hey, 
we have a position in our company and we want what you do. So why don't you come? So this is part of what I think of as leading from without. If I'm not inside the organization, but they become aware of me and they think I might be a good fit, then I don't need to present my resume and my application so that they can choose between others. They already saying, hey, we want you. And that actually started working for me almost right away. In fact, within the first year of doing that, I was offered a position to teach at a university. And I said, I'm I'm not a teacher. And they said, well, I think you could do this. So I took the job. I, I did that for a year, uh, teaching um, programming classes in client server programming. So, you know, the point being, this part is part of what I call leading from without, is you need to know what you believe in. You have to know what you think is good and you need to share it. And then others who are attracted to that will find you and they will ask you to come help them. Now, leading from within is the opposite sort of, you're already in an organization. You want things to be better, but you don't have the power or authority to make the changes. How are you gonna make things better in that scenario? And I think this has been very important to me, learning the techniques for inviting others to join you in making things better. And I've not always been very successful with that, but I learned a lot in trying to do it. And I think that over my last, you know, from 1999 on, there was a journey of trying to learn how can I invite others to try to make things better when I'm not the boss, when I can't say we're going to make things better. Yeah, uh, Woody, I think uh, that's a very, very, very cool thing, right? In fact, uh, I was also going to ask you about your, why you started speaking in the conferences. And uh, in the end of the day, uh, every time I I get on the podium, I have butterflies. Um, how much ever uh, I have, I know the topic, I know everything, but still I have butterflies. So I yes. want to understand uh, from you, how did you know that you like this whole conference speaking and uh, model of uh, teaching people? In the next part of uh, the conversation with Dudi, you will hear about how he started becoming part of the speaker network and uh, creating tips and tricks about uh, the conferences and he shares wonderful uh, snippets on how he made himself balance the whole software engagements and creating a great network and social media presence as well. Don't forget to tune in on Tuesday. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.